0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 500 of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, You can watch this, and it's probably better to watch it, honestly, on my YouTube channel, Chris Ryan, uh, because you can see the three of us, myself, uh, Mike Marr, and Anya Katz all having this conversation, and you can see the comments streaming by that we were responding to sometimes uh, it's probably a better experience if you have time and interest to watch it on the YouTube experience on the YouTube channel. Um, but I am uploading it as a standalone audio podcast because I know a lot of people listen in their cars or while taking a walk or painting the wall or hammering or doing whatever the hell they're doing. So here it is. It's uh, an unusual episode, obviously, because it's the three of us just chatting about. Podcasting and what I've learned in the nine years or so that I've been doing this and some of uh, the most memorable experiences I've had and, and how the podcast has changed my life, which is considerable. Of course, nine years, any life's going to change. So um, some changes have been uh, attributable to doing a podcast and others just to the passage of time. Um, I thought that what I would do musically is shift from the normal structure, obviously. Um, But I'm going to play the song that you hear at the beginning of every podcast. You hear an excerpt of the song Bright Side of the Sun by the band Basin and Range, who uh, very uh, graciously um, permitted me to use a little snippet of their song years ago. And I'm going to play the whole song so that you can hear the context um, of, the, of the bit that you hear every episode. And then I'm going to play the audio of the three of us talking, which goes on for almost two hours. And then at the end of that, rather than the normal outro that I play, I'm going to play another piece of music that you hear a snippet of every episode, which is a song called Omens. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's Brazilian. It means people um, by Manu Chao. And uh it's from the album uh, Ultima Stacion Esperanza, I think. And um you'll hear that uh Radio Mano Papacengo in the middle of that song or toward the end. That's where I got it. People often write and say, Where what is that? And I think it's a like a call, uh radio station call from somewhere in Latin America. Manu Chao uses lots of um found uh sounds uh, he sort of makes this pastiche, an oral pastiche in a lot of his songs. I love it. It's um, a really interesting way of making music that I admire. So I'm going to play you Bright Side of the Sun, and then the bulk of the meat of the podcast, and then I'll end with Omens by Manu Chao. Thank you for listening. Hope everything's going great out there. I will have episode 501 up here in a few days. Many thanks to the OG listeners out there who have been along for the whole ride and uh, a sincere welcome to those of you who have just come along recently. Thanks for being here. It's an honor. I guess we're good. I guess we're good to go, right? We are good to go. All right. Sweet. Well, uh,
1: welcome, everyone. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is fucking Ecology. weird. Can <laughs> I start you off with something, Chris, because I thought it's quite apt. So um, you did a, a podcast with Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell a little while ago. I think it was about nine years ago. <laughs> a little and while and, and ago. on there, you were congratulating Joe for 500 episodes. I don't know if you remember this. And, yeah, and he said some congratulations. He said you shouldn't congratulate me. I'm, I'm just trying. I tried to get the, the actual quote. He goes, uh, "It just you just sort of keep doing them, and it gets to 500." And I wondered if you had any thoughts on on that.
0: That's funny. I, I was thinking about that recently, actually. Uh, that that it made him uncomfortable. I think when I said, you know, when I called attention to the 500, you can see it's like some people with birthdays, like me, for example. I I don't like birthdays. I don't like calling attention uh, to the passage of time or whatever. Mm. It feels like a bad luck, you know, kind of thing where it's like, ah, it's going to get fucked up now that we're celebrating it somehow. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that that's, that's an interesting connection. And he's probably pushing a thousand by now or maybe more. I
1: think 16 or 1700 now. I think oh, Jesus. On. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's true. I mean, I I think if you if you look at something as, you know, like I want to write 10 books, you're going to end up with some really shitty books because you're focused on completing a list rather than letting letting it happen organically. And I feel like this podcast is really interesting for me because it's it's something that I've enjoyed organically the whole time. And so looking back and saying 500 episodes, holy shit. And I look at the list and it's like, oh yeah, that guy and oh, her, I forgot about her. Uh, it's awesome. It, it feels really good, but it doesn't, maybe this is what Joe is getting at. It doesn't feel like an accomplishment because I've been having fun the whole time. So it's like, nobody congratulates you for having taken 500 shits, you know, or, eaten 500 or drank 500 beers or whatever. It's like, yeah, I just, I like beer, so I drink a lot of beers.
2: Can which I be is an a... annoying technical person? I, the link for the 500th episode, if you click on it, does not go to where we're speaking right now.
1: Yeah. Oh. I, I saw somebody in the, in the in the group put that, although it is live on YouTube. We're so live
2: I'm... on his channel, but it's not the link that we just promoted to everybody.
1: Ouch.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, do we
0: have a... Link to this one that we could throw up on social media.
1: Yeah i I can put it in the chat to you now, and then I don't know if you want to pop it into into like WhatsApp Anya can can I'll
0: just WhatsApp. throw it up because we yeah. sent people to the wrong place.
1: Uh, hopefully they'll st- you'll st- people are getting alerts. People are finding this, and I can see people chatting with us now. But yeah, it's uh, not sure what's going on there. Something techie.
0: Okay, I'm gonna throw this up on Twitter real quickly, and Anya,
1: you'll throw it up on Instagram. I'll do the same on my channel as well. Give me one sec.
2: Yeah, I mean, all the there's like six broken links.
1: To so those that are with us, bear with us. We're so sorry about this. Bloody me and Zoom always goes wrong when we're doing a live stream.
0: Well, better you than me, man. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have even tried this. All right, so uh, let me get back where I can see people's comments. Where is it? Here, okay, all right. Uh, Hello, Heather Ann from Nashville, Indiana. What's up, Mark from Wales. Uh, Hey, London, this is awesome. Dane, I know Dane, Florida. Dane's a marine biologist, I believe. Um, Pink flamingo. Um, So, are people find are people here? Because these, com- like these comments look like they've lost. The- um, these comments look like they lost the feed when we stopped that other stream. And where's Mike? Have we lost what Mike? I'll do. I'm hmm.
1: going to pop onto the old stream and just leave like a little message on there, just in case there is anybody uh, waiting.
0: I think there. What I see here, yeah, maybe I'm looking at the comments from the old stream. Where's the new stream?
1: If you just go back into <laughs> just if you just go maybe hell. head head on just main to the main screen of YouTube, it should hopefully just bring you back to the top one. But I'm just going to go to the original one and leave a comment. Uh...
3: Okay. Live. Yeah. This is- oh, here we
0: are.
1: Yeah. All
3: right. Oh, man.
0: Okay. Anya, can you hear me?
2: I can. Yeah. I'm just trying to fix the like 12 broken links on Instagram. So
0: well make sure you got the right one I do and I'm trying to see the chat that's on the new one without watching the new one how do I how do I see the people there I'm sorry guys if you hear us this confusion
1: okay there's 58 people now I'm hoping that's the same sort of 57-58 that were with us five minutes ago I've put a message on there so um, hopefully people will see that and jump on over with the link as well.
0: Okay. This reminds me of helping my parents with technology. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're uh, again. Yeah, Anya? Yes. When you get a minute, can you come and help me help your daddy with this? because <laughs> I can't see the comments. Okay. And yes. I want to respond to people while we're dragging them through our confusion. Uh, Christina Powell says, will you do another Toma episode? Yes, I intend to. I've got a list of Toma subjects um, that I want to do. But how do I... Sorry, Christina. No, I want a live chat, but I just can't view it and have the zoom up at the same time. Are you pop out chat pop out chat there. okay here we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I do intend to do more um, Tomas. It's a weird thing The toma it's like a mood thing. Um, I kind of there's a, a particular headspace that I get into and it feels appropriate to do that kind of thing. And um, I don't get into that headspace as much as I used to. I think part of it is because I was living um, alone for a while. And so, you know, there'd be a, I have been a, alone for a couple of days and I just feel like talking to someone and I'll pour myself a glass of wine and um, hook into you folks and tell you a story. And that felt, really good to me. And again, like I was saying earlier, it felt really organic. And I try to um, organize my life in such a way that I really am only doing what I feel like doing at any given time. And so that makes things very sort of chaotic and unreliable. And people are like, oh, why don't you do more of this? Or, you know, go back and do more of those book things. And and I love all those things, but I love them when I love them. So, um, but yes, I do intend to do more Tomas for sure. Thank you for your question. Uh, how do you stay sane in an insane world? Well, I question your premise that I'm sane. Um, so I don't know. It's, uh, I, I stay, I think I'm happy and I think I find meaning. And I think that's more important than, um, questions of sanity, I guess. Shrimp parade is long overdue. Yes, yes, I know. But see, again, that's a thing that it happened when it happened. And it was easy. And, you know, we were all in LA and it was easy to schedule and everybody was down. And at this point, it would be, you know, Zoom computer confusion to, to try to do something like that. So I'm afraid the shrimp parade days are probably over cuz i'm sure as fuck not going to move to austin all right so we're back are we good are we we're live or we we're we're supposed live. to be
1: it looks like we're all good now yeah
0: oh beautiful and it says what there're like 200 people or something i don't know
1: 84 right now which is great
0: 84 great well welcome everyone i saw someone posted a millennials guide to saving the zoom chat that was
1: nice <laughs> yeah quick wit thank you millennial are you a millennial mike i'm an elder millennial so i'm 82 i was born so i think i just scraped by
2: you are yes
0: (laughs) yeah yeah okay well i'm just barely a boomer uh, officially i'm like the last boomer yeah when all the boomers are dead i'll be you know
1: (laughs) what what was that what was the next what was after that
0: Uh, I don't know. Was it Gen X or something? Or was that much later? I don't know. I don't think, see, I think this whole generational thing is total bullshit, right? It's, it's, it's just nonsense. Mm. The whole idea of like, oh, that was a generation. I think the boomers sort of made sense as a generation because that was the returning veterans from World War II. You know, they came back, they had the college education paid for by the, you know, Veterans Administration And so there was this kind of, like, um, it's like, you know, American culture had been on pause during World War II. And so afterwards, it, like, kicked back into gear. All these kids were born because the men were coming back. And it's a whole lot of fucking going on. And Elvis. And so it made sense. But then I think there was no generation after that because there was no huge disruptor like World War II you know, that sort of made the wave ripple through the culture. And uh, and yeah, I think after that, it's just marketing nonsense. So, fuck it. That's what I say. Uh, all right. Hey, we got Steve Carter. He's a boomer. Yeah, you're a, you're a legit boomer. Um, so, anyway, we're, uh, did you guys want to ask questions or should we keep looking at the comments or what? I feel bad seeing them scroll by and ignoring them. It feels
2: rude. I was just adding the correct link to the last video in the description, just in case anyone ah,
3: confused.
2: I'm just um, to.
3: yeah,
0: this is uh, somebody says it's cool to be live streaming and interacting. I agree. Thank you, S. Sagro. Um, is it sanity or are most people just asleep ninety-eight percent of the time, like tunnel vision level of awareness only existing at the whim of limbic system, then rationalizing that linguistically? Yeah, probably. That sounds pretty true. I mean, we're animals, right? And I think, you know, we're this fancy animal that supposedly knows it's an animal or has enough consciousness to deny the fact that it's an animal. But I do think that, as Brad says, it's ninety-eight percent of our existence is instinctive. Ninety-eight percent of our anxieties are automatic reactions to things, and we're not really, uh, you know, we're the flea on the top of the elephant that thinks that it's controlling the movements of the elephant. But I think we're not. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about what Mike here is doing with his podcast, Take a Deep Breath.
1: Nice segue, Chris.
0: Yeah. Uh, Breathing is the bridge between what happens automatically and instinctively and what happens consciously. So as you start to take control of breathing and be more conscious of it, I think that spreads into other areas of our physiology. I remember talking with Andrew Weil about this a long time ago. He had said in one of his books that breathing is the bridge between the autonomic and uh, what's the other the the two nervous systems, um, the, you know, the one that's automatic and the one yeah. that's controlled, sympathetic. Sorry, and um, and he said that's the bridge. It's the it's the only thing that really um, you do consciously when you're aware of it, but then when you stop being aware of it, it just happens automatically. And I thought I'd studied um, psychophysiology a lot and was very interested in it. And the first thing that popped to mind for me, no pun intended, was erections, right? You, as a man, you can give yourself an erection just by thinking inappropriate thoughts but then you don't have to be thinking anything and it can just happen automatically. So I think, you know, it sounds like I was just being a smart ass, which I was, and and it embarrassed him a bit when I said that, but I think that that's why sexuality and breathing are key to so many meditative technologies, right? I think, you know, they're they're systems of yoga that are very much keyed into the movement of erotic energy and the awareness of eroticism. Um, And that's always appealed to me, of course, which has made Buddhism complicated for me because of the sort of uh, vilification of desire. So I've spent a lot of time trying to meditate, listening to people say desire is the enemy. And I'm like, no, dude, desire is what keeps me alive. You know, desire is not something to be um, eschewed or, or, Um, expelled from our life desire is something to be appreciated and welcomed and controlled but controlled in a friendly way the way you control a horse you're riding right not in a abusive way or a shameful way
1: i had a a chap on my podcast a little while ago and he's a, a relationship person of sorts that helps relationships I'm not sure what the correct term is but he has a breathing technique I haven't actually tried it yet where you sit back to back with your partner and there's something there about being supported by each other while you kind of do this rhythmic breathing and the rhythms kind Mm. of sync up and it's meant to be a really lovely way of building a connection so I quite like that that kind of goes deeper into the breathing and the sexuality and the connection and all that all that sort of stuff Um, I just wanted to say because I'm just conscious probably a lot of your audience don't know who the hell I am sitting here because uh obviously they know you I don't know. know who the hell you are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know You're just well. Zoom. That's, that's, that's
2: I don't questions. know who any of you guys
1: are. I'm just also not doing myself a very good service because I'm technically doing a lot of video stuff for you. And both times you and I've tried to do some video stuff, things have gone a bit bs, haven't they? <laughs> so so we, we Chris and I tried to do an interview three or four months ago and something crashed on my webcam um and even now this Zoom thing but um i uh as chris said i, I run a, a breathing podcast called take a deep breath and i've got a, a youtube channel um which also is the same thing breathing exercise and i'm sure we'll talk about a few bits today um but also uh, I'm, i've got i think the privilege of, of doing chris's youtube channel for him so i'm the one that's editing the videos with the audio and sticking them online and trying to get people to subscribe. So if you're watching this right now and you haven't hit that subscribe button, this would be the perfect time to do so. If you could just <laughs> oh, give it a little nice.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Ring the bell. And there are some
2: actual there are some actual videos of you whenever you do remote interviews so people can actually see you talking to them live if you're into that kind of thing.
0: Right. Right. And you've gone to your AirPods rather than the wired ones.
2: I apparently nobody could hear me, which I did sort of hear in the sound check, but thought it might come through. So I've
1: switched. Oh, and oh. Hopefully,
2: uh, hopefully I'm audible.
1: <laughs> yep, that
0: sounds good. Christina yeah. Powell asked, Chris, will you write a fictional book about the hunter gatherer time? I think you. Yeah, I did mention that. Uh, yes, Christina, I very much am interested in doing that. Uh, and in fact, it's something that Anya and I have talked about uh, working on together. Um, so she would probably be the, the principal author on that. And I would be the, um, uh, what do we call me? The prehistory consultant or something? <laughs> consultant,
2: yeah. We have like, I have like 40 something pages. So it's a, it's a real-ish thing at this point.
0: Yeah, just and just just for you guys, should we tell them a, a little bit about it? Just a little tease or not? How do you feel?
2: Yeah, that's fine. I mean, this is a tease. I mean, it's basically a fictional story that um, is coming from the perspective of a woman, uh, but will obviously have multiple characters in it. And it's pretty much an erotic novel. And all of the... Um, really scandalous taboo <laughs> sex scenes will all be based in anthropological research. So it'll be both erotic and educational. Um, right. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. We're hopefully going to work on it this winter and have some downtime to focus. So
0: Clan of the Cave Bear meets Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> but but much better yeah. written and but historically the, yeah. historically accurate. I mean, I think that's the thing uh, that you know people love reading eroticism, but if you can give them eroticism that is also uh, historically accurate, that people really do and did these things, uh, I think that will be uh, that'll be useful for people. Um, someone Keith asks, are you going to get Rick Beato on again? I would love to, I hope so. Uh, but you know, he's one of those guys who's getting so famous that, um, who knows what'll happen. Uh, but he's a, he's a real cool guy, really a sweet dude. And he certainly doesn't need to, you know, he's not getting any big benefit from being on my podcast, but, um, he and I are buddies now, so it's a good chance to catch up. So, yes, Keith, Chris, do you want so. me to
2: manage the the questions for you so you don't have to read them, and I can just kind of sure, tell you yeah, that. That yeah.
0: You? Um, <laughs> and while you're doing that, I just made a couple of notes. Someone said something about wanting to do a documentary about Wilhelm Reich. Uh, I think that would be great. I would love to see more about him. He's a super interesting character. For those of you who don't know, he was one of Freud's um, students. In fact, he was sort of Freud's chosen successor for a time. And then he um, he and Freud had a falling out, as happened with Carl Jung as well and Freud. Um, but Wilhelm Reich was fascinating. He had this idea that erotic energy is the life energy and he um, did some controversial therapeutic approaches and uh, and then kind of lost his shit and ended up in prison. And, yeah, he's a really interesting character uh, and I think underappreciated. So I agree with whoever said that. And then someone asked what I thought about stoicism. I think stoicism is awesome. I, I think it's very much... Uh, it's a source of great wisdom. Um, You know, the idea that, you know, people think Stoicism as it's understood today is all about renunciation of pleasure, but that's not really how the Greeks uh, understood it. At least my understanding of their understanding is that it was about sort of maximizing pleasure, but in ways that are most efficient and intelligent. And so they would have said, you know, don't spend your life chasing money, spend your life appreciating the beauties of life and love and sex and good food, but not expensive food, just good food, right? And so they were not about renouncing pleasure, they were in a way about cultivating pleasure, but in a much more thoughtful and intelligent way. So, uh, I can't
1: speaking cross, of- oh, go ahead, Anya.
2: Uh, I was just going to say, speaking of uh, cultivating pleasure, someone asked, do you think people are having sex these days? (laughs) I think it's an interesting question that we were talking about yesterday. I think there's a lot of of, like, I don't know, the world has become so squeaky clean and um, uh, particular about what to say and what to do that. I think about that a lot, actually, if people are having less sex because we've sort of (laughs) you would think we would shame pleasure less these days, but I think in many ways we're becoming even more uptight.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, and largely because I think the, the, a lot of the people who used to be shamelessly promoting pleasure have somehow become the scolds. Andrew Sullivan just wrote a really interesting piece on this that we were discussing last night about how, a lot of the LGBT community Q, sorry, left off the Q. Um, Although isn't Q redundant? Isn't queer just like I'm one of the other letters? I I don't know. Anyway, um, he was saying that, you know, the gay rights movement used to be the ones who were all about free speech and, and, you know, rational argument. And I want to hear what you have to say. And, you know, we just deserve to be equal and now they're all about you're transphobic if you don't agree with this or you're anti this or you're anti that it's become the people who used to be promoting sex and fun and and you know it's like hippies it's like scoldy hippies what the fuck is that you can't be a scoldy hippie
2: and wokeness is just not really that sexy
0: (laughs) well that's it right because sexy (laughs) is about uh accepting and pursuing the other right and wanting to merge right. with the other if you're just like everything you already know what it is and it's only what's acceptable That yeah sex is messy right. both literally and figuratively
2: and yeah. it's like taboo and like it kind of should be outside the lines and power and there's all these things that we're kind of sanitizing it against and i think those are that those are the things that make sex interesting and why we are attracted to certain things is it's kind of taboo nature. And if we just do everything, color in the lines as it were, then it becomes kind of like a boring coloring book.
3: Mm. Yeah. I
1: was gonna say, there's so, a really good uh, TV show on Netflix called sex education. It's a British show, but I guess it's probably on Netflix everywhere. And it's, it's so good because it, it's not afraid to like tackle all the different issues. So you've got like people in the fifties that are having a baby and you've got all, you know, different types of relationships. And, and it's, it's just bringing that conversation to a place where like you're sitting down watching TV and think, oh, okay. And I'm, we're all learning things from it. So I don't know if anyone's had chance to see that yet, but it's, it's, I think it's a really important show that I don't know if it's been recognized as that yet, but it's just made it very, very mainstream to talk about all of the, the different things that are going on. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, someone I saw earlier, someone asked about uh, large age gaps in relationships, uh, and he or she said, like, a, you know, a 20-year-old with a 40-plus-year-old. Um, I think the, the thing about age gaps, I when I was 30, I um, had a relationship with a woman who was tw- 19 or 20 when we met, um, so there was... Roughly a ten-year uh, difference, and that was a massive age gap. That was a real. That was a big age gap. And now uh, I'm with someone who's 33, and I'm 59. So it's a much bigger numerically, a bigger gap. But it's much smaller in um, in real life. And so I think the thing about age gaps is the years get smaller as you get older. And for me, the difference is, are, the, are we talking about two adults or not? Because if you're talking about, a you know, someone who's very young and an adult, then it I think it's problematic. But I think that certain people, you know, they become adults at different ages. Um, I probably became an adult around 35, maybe. I don't know. Uh, everybody has different uh, s- speed, but... Um, I think if they're two adults and then the age isn't really an issue, um, but it's someone who's 20 and someone who's 45, I don't know, Anya, maybe you can speak to that. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I I was with someone, I was 22 and he was 46 at the time. And that was a big mistake. I think simply because most people in their twenties, if things are working well, they shift and change and try on lots of different identities and outfits and kind of are figuring out who they are in that period of time. And who I thought I wanted to be at 22 was nothing at all similar to who I was and who I ended up being at, you know, even 27, 28. Um, So I don't think it was the age, like you said, that was the issue. It was the fact that I couldn't rightfully say, I know what I want um, at 22 through. 26 27 or you know it depends i for other people they don't become who they're going to be i don't know chris you say this really interesting thing that there's like we go through all these kinds of deaths and rebirths when we're young and then at some point we go through like this kind of not as if we won't change after that but we kind of become the person we're kind of going to be for the rest of our lives and i think that can happen for, for people at different ages but it very rarely happens i think before your late 20s um, and I think until you've gone through that kind of last death rebirth cycle of like, okay, that was not who I wanted to be. That didn't make any sense. That didn't feel right until you've done that. I don't think it makes a ton of sense to commit to something long-term. I think it's stifling for like all parties involved.
1: You think yeah. that, you know, when that last life and death rebirth thing happens though, because that's quite interesting because I would say 35 for me was a big one um, and, mm. and, a, and a big shift, but I, Will that happen again? I don't know. I'm not sure if I can be confident (laughs) to say that. I don't think so. I I think it happens at some point, and and
0: also, I don't think it happens for everyone. Mm. Um, I just recorded a podcast with uh, Dallas Hartwig, uh, talking a lot about masculinity, and he made the point that you know there are. Ideally, there are three phases of a man's life and and you can listen to the podcast. it'll come out in a few weeks. Um, but he he made the point that most men in the Western world are stuck in the second phase and never move to the third phase, the actual adult phase. Um, and I think that's that's a problem. and I think that's um, you know, Anya can speak to this as well like, I think a lot of women are attracted to older men, not so much because they're older, but because there's a better probability that they've moved into that third phase, um, which yeah, isn't not a full about, group
2: system, though.
0: No, of course <laughs> not. And, and so <laughs> anyway, but what I was going to say is I feel like these phases are, you know, you become an adult and then you just get older but you don't have that same kind of transformation that you have from teenager to adult. Um, So, yeah. And people talk about a midlife crisis, right? In men, what's the midlife crisis? It's, Oh, I married the wrong woman. I'm not happy with my job. I, I feel like all I do is, you know, get up and run all day to try to pay bills. I'm not getting anywhere and there's no meaning in my life. And I don't think that's a midlife crisis. I think that's a boy trying to figure out how to be a man. And that if you figure it out, then of course you're refining it and and, and adjusting. But I feel like that's such a transformative thing. It's like coming out of the closet, right? Or leaving Mormonism. We have a bunch yeah. of friends who are ex-Mormons, and that's such a huge thing to to step away and say, no, I don't believe this. I'm, I need to be what I am, you know?
1: Um, So I do think
0: it happens. And then you just sort of move on from there.
1: We, we, I think, I don't know if we had this conversation when we we did my podcast, but that's exactly what happened to me. So I remember I put my little earbuds in and walked to work in the morning. I've been the job at that point, 12 or 13 years. this, I'd walked into the same office building for over a decade you know I, I remember thinking how many thousands of times have i stepped through these front doors into the same right. wall and then i started listening to your podcast joe's podcast um i'm thinking shit there's so much more out here and it really that really was for me personally but and i'm sure there's other people that watch this a big awakening hearing stories of travel from far off India and all these places in the eighties and nineties that was so different and hearing people talk so openly about sex and relationships and how, you know, things can be different and better and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, it, yeah, the power of this podcast in particular, I'm sure, and I know you've said this before, but it's hard to where to put this, but when people give you that praise, but you've affected a lot of lives, Chris, and, and for the better as well. And I know that's, a, I get some comments sometimes on the breathing videos, um, and some really personal ones sometimes, and I don't know what to do with them as well. It's, it's it's a tough thing, but I think it's worth saying on the 500th anniversary of the first podcast, whatever. Everyone looked at You've you've, you've done some you've done some cracking stuff, and I, and I personally am very appreciative of, of what you've done.
0: Well, thank you, thanks. But as as I was so, saying, it it I, it's only easy because it feels good to me, right? Like I'm not trying to yeah affect other people's lives. I'm just you know spouting my bullshit, and if it works out that way. Beautiful. Anya, you were going to say something?
2: Yeah. So someone is asking about what your thoughts are on spiritual awakening. And I think that kind of relates to this. I'm personally interested in what you have to say about this as well, and how that kind of relates to that kind of last final coming of age in a way. Um, And whether you think you had that kind of I mean, I hate that word, but awakening to some extent um, through psychedelics or traveling where you sort of realize like, wow, the world is much larger, much different than I sort of initially thought and that that felt a little bit unnerving or uh, like the ground was sort of shaking beneath you.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I often refer to that first trip to Alaska I took where my life path, Uh, dissolved before me. Um, You know, I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And I, I had all these contacts and, and I was doing really well as a literature student. And, you know, I had this professor who was a big shot at Oxford and he was going to get me in. And, you know, I was going to like be that guy, you know, the tenured professor at some college by the time I was 30 And I was hitchhiking and I met all these amazing people um, who were super kind to me and, you know, took me home and let me sleep on the sofa and then gave me a ride back out to the highway the next day and picked me up in the rain. There was a woman in, I'll never forget her, in Bend, Oregon, who took me out and she was taking me back to the highway and she was like, your shoes are falling apart, dude. And we stopped at a mall and she said, I'm buying you shoes. You need new shoes. And it's like, oh, no, it's okay. And like, no, no, I'm buying you shoes. Anyway, her last name was Love. I don't remember her first name, but I remember her name was Love. Anyway, that for me, I mean, I was 20 or 21 maybe, but that was a really important pivot point for me because I met people who were totally different from me Didn't value or understand the things that I thought were super important, um, but were awesome people and were happy and made me, you know, the combination of meeting them and the physical distance of being away from college and my whole crowd back in college, I had the perspective to look back and realize like, fuck, like the people I admire aren't really happy and they don't have good relationships and they're bitter and they, they would make fun of these people. If they met them, they would make fun of how uneducated they are and how, you know, pedestrian their tastes are and that they don't read Nietzsche or listen to Mahler and all this shit. And, and yet these people were helping me and being really kind to me and, and welcoming me and the, the disparity of those two worlds just, um, became so clear to me. Uh, and so that was a big awakening, uh, for me to, to sort of see like, Oh, wait a minute, I'm on the path to a place. I don't actually want to go. I don't know where I want to go. All I know is I want to hang out with people who have their shit together and who are kind to strangers and who, you know, I admire this guy whose wife loves him And he's got these cool dogs and he knows how to fix his truck. And he built his house with his own hands and like, this guy's awesome. And yeah, he hasn't read these books I've read and he doesn't listen to this music and he doesn't, you know, have the IQ that these friends of mine have. But who cares? He's figured his shit out and he's living a good life. And that's more important. So that was a big moment. The moment I quit my job in New York, where the guy was offering me a million dollars to stay. And I just like, fuck, no, I got to go. And what's interesting about that is actually, this is something your father was saying on you just this morning. Um, when you're young, you're on a path and you come to a crisis point where you're like, I don't think this is the right path for me. Like what Mike was just saying, he's going into his job, for a thousandth time. And he's like, this isn't my path. But the problem is you don't have the alternative. You don't know what is the right path. And so it's very scary to say, I'm going to abandon this and I have no idea what I'm going to replace it with. It's like leaving a relationship. It's really hard. And a lot of people wait around till they meet someone else and then they just jump from one to another. But what really takes courage is to say, I'm gonna swim away from this island I'm on because this isn't the right island for me. And yeah, maybe I won't find another island. Maybe I'm gonna just be lost at sea, but I need to go. I need to find out. I think that's a real problem that a lot of young people have where they're like, I don't wanna leave this until I've got something better. That's not the way to do it, Mm -hmm. in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there's two metaphors there that comes to mind. One is if anyone's ever tried rock climbing um, or or whatever bouldering, whatever it's called, you grip on so hard and you actually have to relax and let your arms do the work because you can't use your biceps to hold your whole body up. It's impossible. And so there's this moment of faith where you just have to trust in your... In your arms, but there was a mm. metaphor to something you said actually, Chris, in a podcast ages ago. This is the benefit of of being a long time fan. Actually, I feel like I've won the the, the 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 tangentially lottery here, getting to have this conversation <laughs> with you as well. But um you talked a bit about travel on one of your podcasts in terms of most of the energy is expelled trying to get off the surface of the planet. Mm. Right, like a rocket, yeah, yeah, and so it it kind of goes back to the faith that you've got to have to to leave the island or whatever, but also there's this piece around it's going to take a lot of energy, but you so you need that faith of where you're trying to get to, but it actually does get a lot easier once you've you've kind of made some decisions. That's it, I think that was a really good bit of advice because that going back to that job again after that was 14 years I quit that job in the end to, to. Buy a one-way ticket out of the UK and that metaphor stayed with me a lot during that because it's like I know most of the energy is here and even I think you relate you even put this piece in one of your conversations around you end up having all these goodbye parties and you end up thinking oh I should stay because this is lovely but actually they're yeah. only giving you those parties because it's a it's a goodbye <laughs> you're not going to yeah. get that if you decide to it's stay. true
0: <laughs> it's true I always it's like I would always meet some really attractive woman just before I was leaving who was interested in being with me. And it was always, it all, you know, it was like the universe is fucking with my head here, man. You know, I've quit my job. I told them I'm leaving my apartment. I sold my car and now I meet you a week before I'm leaving. But, but then I realized like, no, the reason these women are attracted to me is because I've got the energy of a guy who's doing what the fuck he wants to do. I've got the energy now. I didn't have it three months ago when I was like wringing my hands, trying to decide what to do with my life. But since I made the decision and started putting it into action, I, I, my energy is different. And so, of course, these women pop out at that moment. It's not the universe fucking with me. It's the nature of reality that these kinds of people are attracted to someone who's doing what they want to do, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I have a, a, I had a question personally and, and someone else asked about this. So it's a good tie-in. Uh, they were asking about individualism and um, I think it might be interesting for you to kind of talk a little bit about your opinions about that individualism versus like community mindsets, collectivism. Um, and also if you feel like throughout the length of your podcast that people have kind of been attracted to you for being this kind of like contrarian, someone that doesn't necessarily agree with the masses, and whether there have been points in the podcast where you feel like you kind of surprised the audience um, in a way that they did list and contrarian and someone who doesn't, you know, trust the government or trust this. And um, yeah, I'm just curious if you've had times where you're like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to maybe piss people off and maybe people had the wrong idea of who I was. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. That's a trick question because Anya knows the answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I piss people off all the time. I think the the thing that seems to have pissed people off the most was in early covid Uh, days when I was saying what the fuck is wrong with people who don't wear masks you know Um, a lot of people were like you know you know masks don't do anything and and there's all this all this controversy and to me it's like look um, it's pretty obvious that a mask you know the virus is in your saliva a mask filters your saliva reduces the amount of fucking spray that goes out from your pie hole. Uh, This isn't complicated, you know, and, and I certainly sympathize with people who have to wear a fucking mask all day and it's a pain in the ass and, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not an effective way to, um, mitigate the spread. I hate condoms, but Hey, condoms are pretty fucking good at blocking venereal diseases. Right. Um, so it's, One question is, do you like it? Is it fair that you have to wear it at work all day? Blah, blah, blah. But the other question is, is it effective at dealing with what we're trying to do? And to me, that was super clear. And yeah, I got a lot of blowback. A lot of people saying, you know, I thought you were cool, man. I thought, you know, you disagreed with the government. I thought you're you're just another fucking sellout or shill or whatever. And the problem is, I'm not a contrarian. I'm a free thinker. I think for myself. Uh, I'm a critical thinker. Uh, I'm pretty good at analyzing arguments. I'm pretty good at seeing what makes sense and what doesn't, I think. Um, And so that's what I do. And I'm not choosing a position because it fits a particular agenda, like the anti-government agenda, or the anti-corporate agenda, or the anti-big pharma agenda. I am often anti government i'm often anti big pharma i'm often anti uh everything but you got to pick and choose because vaccines are fucking awesome uh vaccines save a lot of lives now is it fair that pfizer took money from the government to develop the vaccine really quickly and is now charging lots of money to distribute the vaccine no of course not that's bullshit that's corrupt as fuck but does the vaccine work? Yes, it does. They do. Am I vaxxed? I saw somebody ask, yes. Fuck yeah, I'm vaxxed. And I'm going to get a booster as soon as I get back to the States. So, you know, some people be upset with that, but I don't give a shit. Uh, these are my positions. These are the things that I believe. And I feel like my only real responsibility to this platform and to the fact that, you know, you people are tuning in to listen to this is to tell you what I think is true. I can be wrong for sure, um, but it's not to stroke you with predictably anti this or that positions.
2: Have you thought about like sort of how, because I think at the root of a lot of this debate, at least in my experience, has been this idea of individualism versus collectivism. And I kind of struggle sometimes because I feel like even in my life, I had to like do this thing where I extricated myself from a lot of kind of toxic or harmful ideas and had to really protect myself and set boundaries and think for myself and not prioritize other people and their needs. And then eventually I feel like I kind of came full circle to realize, like, well, I think what will ultimately save us is actually us protecting each other and working together and, um, I think that people are having a hard time trying to balance like responsibility for others versus protecting themselves or setting boundaries for themselves. And what do you think about how one can do that?
0: That's a big question. And I would question the premise too, like, uh, is anything ultimately going to save us? (laughs) We're doomed. We're all doomed eventually. (laughs) But Uh, Yeah, I think that, I think, you know, not to be cliched, but, you know, it it all comes down to love, right? And love requires understanding and acceptance and vulnerability and all these sort of secondary components of love. Um, And it's very hard to experience those things with people you don't actually know. Um, you can experience something that feels like it, right? Like you can see some actor or podcaster or somebody and feel like, oh, I really, that person resonates with me, but they don't know you. And so it's a one-way relationship. It's all weird. So I do feel like um, the best way forward is for us to uh, return to some kind of small scale communal existence uh, and take care of each other. And um, I think, you know, that requires taking steps towards, you know, growing as much of our own food as we can, you know, like we've got a collection of friends where one guy's a um, an auto mechanic and he fixes cars, he fixed, he did the van with me and he took care of a friend of ours who's got a thing and whatever. And, you know, and we try to take care of other people in the community in whatever way we can. And so this interdependence of people um, on a small scale, I think is really healthy and um, a very robust anti-fragile Um, kind of way of getting through life that worked for hundreds of thousands of years for our ancestors. And so I do feel like a lot of what's going on right now is seeing that this huge, large scale social organization is failing us. And it's failing itself. It's, you know, destroying the planet. It's the consumerism is not making people happy. Uh, You know, Facebook is making people miserable. Suicide rates are going up. Depression's going, all these problems. Um, and what do we need? We need each other, but we need to do it locally. I think um, it's really important that we take care of people we know and not just some abstract Facebook friend that we've never met.
2: Yeah, someone says, "I love this community. I live in a working class, working class English neighborhood, and all of you are the closest friends I can have." And I think like that, you know. And we also don't really know who's around us which is like a really unfortunate part of the kind of society and civilization that we have like you could have someone three three doors down from you that listens to tangentially speaking like <laughs> as you do and you wouldn't ever know and we kind of think of neighbors or family or community in this sort of abstract way and i kind of like to think like since starting my podcast having gone from a position of knowing nobody like me and having no friends and absolutely um, similarly to Mike, listened to your podcast, another podcast, and was like, okay, there are people like me, and now I just need to go about finding them. Um, and I think once we do find them and we're like, okay, well, I would absolutely take one for the team and protect protect those people. And you know, it's difficult for us to find each other sometimes, but we do exist. you know, I think that's something that we experience a lot with the meetups. like we have these meetups in cities and these people that live in these cities come to the meetup and have never met each other before and yet live in the same place and, you know, have the same interests. I think that's been a really sort of like gratifying and uplifting, inspiring thing to do.
0: Yeah. It's
1: like a filter, isn't it? I guess. I mean, I've not had the privilege to be at one of your meetups, but when I've gone to events, be it, you know, some sort of yoga thing or breath thing or, or Wim Hof thing, there's a filter that happens where not everybody's there. And, and actually I felt that when I've done like, I've not done lots of mountains, but when I've climbed some English mountains and bits, you tend to find, and not always, but it filters people out. So by the time you get to the top of that mountain, it tends to be other people that really enjoy mountains and nature that are there. And you end up having a really nice conversation with them. Whether people right down the bottom that are maybe in the cafe or something or wherever, it tends to be that like it's not always the, the, the highest percentage of like, people you've got things in common with or connections. So yeah, there is something to this filtering process. I was just thinking though, like I've spent a lot of my life working in, Call centers, contact centers, and there's something for me around. Um, you could be having a phone call. So you, you know, we all ring our whatever mobile phone providers, and we've got a problem. And maybe I've not been the nicest human being sometimes when I've, I've been, you know, had a problem with my um, phone or, or whatever it is. And I've had some, you know, awful experiences of people ringing me and complaining to me. But then I think you go to a comedy event or something, and you could be sitting next to that same person laughing your socks off. I always wonder about that. It's like sometimes the hats that we put on in different events, but I guess what you're talking about Anya, is like, when, by the time it gets to people being together in those groups, you've kind of gone through a number of different filters to be around your tribe of of people, I guess. I don't know. It's it's just something very interesting there.
0: Yeah. I I think that filtering process that you talk about is hugely important and Mm underappreciated. Um, that that's one of the reasons I traveled a lot, actually, in my 20s and 30s. Partly, it wasn't just that I love traveling, which I did. But one of the things I love so much about traveling wasn't even about the new place I was in. It was about the people I met there, yeah. the travelers, right? Because as you say, there's this, you know, who, who am I going to meet in Pokhara, Nepal in 1987? I'm going to meet somebody who had the energy to get that lift off that you talked about right to escape they 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 achieved escape velocity from wherever they were whatever family shit whatever work shit whatever money shit they figured it out and they got the fuck out and there they are so you meet these free spirits and you meet people who are freer than you are people who have been on the road longer than you have people who have been places you never even thought about and so it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy uh, vibe where you meet the people who are your people. They're your tribe. Of course, it's heartbreaking because then they move on, you move on. But man, I had friendships of a week with some of those people that went deeper than other people I knew for a couple of years. Right. Um, And so I think that's super important. And the other part of my life where I've seen that, Play out is in um, dating. I think people, I talk about this on the podcast a lot, where people are trying to develop a relationship with someone that they met um, based on how attractive they find them. And like that, having a relationship and wanting to fuck someone are two different things. And the fact that you're attracted to them is a totally arbitrary measure of how much you'll actually enjoy spending time with them. So it's a weird, there are all these weird self-destructive mechanisms around dating, like going to a club where the music's so loud, you can't hear each other and you're supposed to meet people there. What the fuck is that? That doesn't make any sense. So I feel like uh, one of my big turning points that you, you were asking about earlier, Mike, was when I, and I, it's interesting, I said, I felt like I became an adult around 35, because this happened around 35, but I wasn't thinking of it, uh, really, but uh, is when I, I said, I'm not sexually monogamous and never will be, like, I know myself well enough now that that's just never going to be me. Uh, and I've been blaming women for this for my discontent and my restlessness. And now I realize this is not their problem. This is not their fault. This is me, this is who I am. And acknowledging this and admitting this in the open probably means I'll never be in a serious relationship with a woman again, because at the time I thought every woman was looking for a husband uh, who would only be with her and there were no other options. Um, but I was willing to pay that price. And so I started at, and I switched my, my research, my doctoral research to human sexuality and prehistory. And so when I met a woman and she said, what do you do? I was like, well, you know, I'm doing this PhD. Oh, what's it about? It's about how humans aren't naturally monogamous. And I thought every woman would just say, Phew, and get up and walk away. And half of them did, but half of them didn't. And the half who didn't were really interesting and so much easier to relate to because I wasn't trying to sell anything to someone who didn't already want to buy it. It just changed the whole nature of my existence. So I ended up far more connected to women than I had been before. Um, And I think that's the nature of um, this filtering process you're talking about. You stop pretending you're someone else. You stop trying to shape yourself to other people's expectations and desires. And suddenly you filtered out all these people you were never going to get get along with anyway. And you've got much more time for the people who actually want to meet someone like you. It's easier for them to find you because you're not camouflaged anymore. It just makes everything so much easier, but it's a really scary step to take.
1: Yeah. I, I, when I, I was on, I'll um, oh, go ahead, Anya. No, you go. I was, like, was going to say when I was on, on Tinder sort of five years ago, so after my marriage finished and I was this, this online thing that I'd never experienced before this online dating stuff, I, I made sure that my net was very generic. So I, you know, I picked what pictures I thought would be perfect for every scenario with, you know, you do the Googling, <laughs> a group of friends, one with an animal, one with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I had all of that and a very generic profile and I, and somehow I got very lucky and found found my partner now, and we've been together now for sort of five years. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have her. But um, my friend, very interestingly, he has uh, recently gone onto Tinder and he's gone ultra niche or niche, as you would say, over your over your side of the pond. Um, and he's been very, very specific. This, this is what he's into. These are the things, you know, and, and not in an aggressive way, a very polite way, but these are the things that I'm interested in and things I'm not. And the connections he's had have, have, have blown my mind because people have reached out to him, girls have reached out to him, and he's had the most wonderful experiences and dates because he went down this super niche which I never would have even considered. I thought, no, no, let's throw that net as wide as possible and we'll see what we can get. And he's gone, no, no, no. Good yeah. Good yeah, interesting. Well, it's
0: like, I mean, I hate to reduce it to something like this, but it's like applying for a job, right? Like, why would you apply for a job you don't want? Mm you know are you going to go and go through three interviews and yeah. you know and then find out that the, you know the pay is not really what you want so you're not going to be happy there anyway like fuck that who's got time for that mm-hmm. plus in addition to just the sort of logistical advantages of of not throwing the net so wide so you can focus more on something that's probably going to be worthwhile Um, There's also the energy thing, like we were talking about earlier, how these people appear when you're about to leave. There's the energy of like, hey, I don't apologize for myself. I know myself. This is who I am. This is what I need. Totally cool. You know, you're not into that. But, you know, it's like if if you really want to have kids. Don't lie about that. You don't want to meet women who don't want to have kids. Like you're just setting yourself up for a fucking problem, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that not apologizing for who you are and being assertive is so important. And and it, it is that moment when a girl becomes a woman or a boy becomes a man is when like yeah, finally figured out who I am. Now I don't. Now I can tell you. You know, hey, I saw somebody. Yeah, I Oh. Sorry, I just want to call out uh, Andy Patterson. He says he's lakeside in Pokhara, Nepal. Fucking awesome, <laughs> dude. I love poker. All right, sorry, go ahead.
2: Um, yeah, I was just going to say too, like, I think our society and culture feeds us this total fallacy about the fact that, like, I mean, it's in every film and so many songs and just pop culture in general that we can't have it all. Like that, we have to sacrifice things and we have, you know, we can't have a relationship and have it be open and live in in the place that we want. And I think that's also part of that sort of like youth process is us thinking, like, oh shit, you know, I wanted XYZ, but it doesn't really seem possible, or I don't have any examples of it, or I don't have any people that I can look up to who are doing that. And we kind of keep like detaching parts of ourselves and like cutting off limbs to kind of fit into this mode and then I think we become kind of also desperate and controlling over what we want and we're not going to find it and I just think there's such an energetic and like honestly erotic shift between like letting all of that go and and thinking like you know what I'd rather actually just be alone (laughs) living the life I want than settling um, and doing something that's less than ideal. Uh, and I think that's a really unfortunate idea that we have that keeps getting promoted over and over again, that like, oh, if you want the stable family, you have to deal with no sex life, you know, and if you want the sex life, you have to deal with no intimacy. And that's mm. just not true. Um, and it's really harmful and a lot of us fall into that trap, I think.
3: Yeah.
0: And it's, it's that that moment of swimming away from an island you don't really want to be on without seeing anything better that you're swimming toward, it's, it's terrifying, but necessary.
2: Yeah. Someone asked about, um, your opinion of like being American or living in America and this, uh, you know, I choice about whether, whether to leave or to stay and how to make that decision. And I know that's something you talk about and think about a lot. So.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I, uh, I feel like America, the United States is going through a real crisis right now. And I'm kind of keeping my powder dry till I see how it plays out. Um, and I, I I thought a few years ago that, you know, the next presidential election was going to determine what would happen. And, uh, it didn't, unfortunately, and I see the Republicans laying the groundwork to end democracy. And um, you know, as I said in my podcast just the other day, the Roma I recorded, it's it's a weird thing because I've never been a big fan of American culture, right? And I've never, um, you know, believed in the fucking. You know, we're the great country that defends freedom around the world and all that shit. I never bought any of that, but it was at least. To some extent, representative democracy and people could vote and and there were options, even if there were very limited options, but I feel like that's collapsing now. And it's going to be like Brazil in the 90s or Argentina. It's going to be. one party is going to get into power and they're not going to let it go. And if that happens, that's a very different country. That's uh, a place I don't necessarily want to live in. Um, So uh, I don't know what's, what's happening and I don't really know how to think of that. I'm just sort of uh, holding my breath and waiting to see how things play out. As far as quality of life goes, um, you know, I'm, I'm almost 60. So I'm starting to think like, Oh, if I get sick, what's going to happen if I need uh, if I get cancer and I need chemo, I need this. I like I, every time I, I need to see a doctor, I fly somewhere else. I go to Thailand and get my teeth worked on. I here in Antigua, I went to a dermatologist. It's so expensive and such a hassle in the U S fuck it. I, it's like, you get sick there, you lose your house, you lose everything. It's it's not a, a good place to, to be. It's really fucked up. So, um, you know, I don't know. Did I answer the question? I, I don't have an answer to it, the question.
2: It's a, it's an impossible question to answer. Um, and like well, thanks for anything, asking it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I know it's something you grapple with uh, a lot. And I think a lot of us are kind of thinking about. And also if America collapses, how does that affect the rest of the world? And I think if we ask... You know, I just did an interview with someone who was born and raised in Pakistan and came to America for college uh, and has gone through 9-11 and gone through being stopped in all sorts of ways because he's, you know, from the Middle East. And it was a really interesting conversation to have with him because in many ways, he still feels really grateful to be here and feels like he's gotten a lot of out of America and a lot of opportunities. And um, so I think it's also like a very kind of subjective experiential thing and there are you know for each of us going to be problems and you know if moving abroad means then we don't get to see our families as much and like there's always there's never kind of a perfect solution and Mm -hmm. I think what you used to say too about like oh we'll just wait till the election And, and now it's like okay now we'll wait till the next election and like it's so difficult to predict like, how will we, how can we know what's going to happen and how to, maybe if there are going to be all these changes, it's going to result in, you know, living in a fascist state or maybe all the changes and the, this stuff will come about in a way that changes the, the country for the better. But again, it's like, you know, we're not psychic. We have no idea. Yeah. So it's sort of a difficult place to try to land on.
1: I don't mean to, yeah. um, I, I, my view of American politics comes through yourself and Joe Rogan and, and everything is weird. I don't. I don't know what's going on in France, which is, you know, I could arguably drive there in a couple of hours, but I know a lot more about what's going on um, in America. But I'm just reminded of um, when I was traveling, I was in Israel, and um, we were doing some couch surfing, and I was complaining about Brexit because I've been focusing on Brexit. This is a couple of years ago, and um, the couple that we were staying with, like, you're in the UK, you're going to be fine because we've got a bomb shelter in this house. (laughs) And it just gave me this lovely perspective. And it's not to diminish what's going on over in America, but it was just this this wonderful thing of, oh, okay, maybe some places have got worse. And again, it's not to to take it down. The other thing that I'm reminded of is I watched the the Joe Rogan Yemeni Park, uh, North Korea defector um, interview that came out. Bloody hell. I, I don't know what to do with that feeling and information. But I just I woke up next day so grateful for where I am on the planet because it's not it's it's, you know know, it's 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 so horrific the stories that she told I I just feel so lost what to do with that but again it just gave me this lovely sense of gratitude so yeah terrible things are happening but I don't know if there's a way just to find some gratitude in in some of it as well it could be worse
0: yeah it could definitely be worse and also. That, you know, it's almost like three D chess, right? Like on the horizontal, you can say, "Well, we could be in North Korea, that would suck, right?" Or we could be in, you know, lots of places that are much harder and 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 difficult. But then on the vertical, you can say, "Okay, well, you can be in the states. You could be living in, you know, fucking Los Angeles." Or you could be in this tiny town in Colorado where we have some land and we're talking about building a place where you can really control your world to a large extent, right? You can buy a cow from the rancher down the road. You've got, you know, someone growing tomatoes over here. Like I said before, you got your buddy who fixes cars. You got this electrician who can, you know, wire up your house and you can build a house for a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, have it paid off and no mortgage so it's it's not only across the world but also where are you vertically within a country and to what extent can you control your micro world because yeah it's true what anya was saying we can't control the macro that's
3: for sure
2: right and also i mean it's been interesting being in guatemala too just with the whole like vaccine COVID situation and to see that actually in a country with less access and less privilege um, is acting so responsibly and so collectively and everyone's cooperating and participating and it's like what does the perspective actually of not having it all all the time right I mean in America we could get a vaccine anywhere we wanted at any time at any age um, and here it's quite difficult to do so and it's like you know, maybe sometimes it's better to have the perspective of not being so spoiled or like not, you know, because here it, they've been able to keep COVID so far down and they didn't even have to get to the like vaccine debate, you know, because people took it seriously and are still wearing mas- masks in the street and gratefully having their temperatures taken. And it's just, it's provided a really interesting perspective for me too that like I don't actually know how much privilege and access are doing us good if in our country, which apparently has all of that, we're acting the most selfish and the most stuck up and the most sort of cut off from the rest of the world and understanding that any reality exists beyond ours. And it's just like a very nuanced issue.
0: Mm-hmm. That's always been an American thing though. America has always yeah. been this, you know, separate world uh, culturally and, and historically. It's, it's interesting. And it's one of the th- reasons I left
3: had to get
2: out how did so some people have asked about van life and after doing the the trip several times i feel like that kind of uh factors into your apocalypse plan (laughs) having the van and kind of being able to go places and um some people just ask like what your what your insights have been after the years you've been doing it and if people wanted to get a van and uh in the u.s and travel around like what would be your kind of top advice for them
0: Uh, Yeah, the van was kind of like my uh, emergency retirement plan. It's like, you know, if shit totally falls apart in my life, as long as I can keep the van rolling, uh, you know, I can live very, very cheaply. Um, So the van thing is like, if you're in the U.S., this is one of the things that's awesome about the U.S. is there's so much public land in the West um, that you can basically just move from place to place and never pay rent anywhere. And uh, if you've got a a van like like what we have, you can be pretty comfortable if your comfort requirements are quite low. And so uh, I've always felt that the key to, Comfort and quality of life is not pulling in more, it's needing less. And so it's kind of, uh, Thoreau had this line that I've always remembered, which is a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And so I feel like that's the best way to really leverage control of your life and autonomy is to need very little. So I've got no problem digging a hole in the desert and taking a dump or, um, you know, fixing my food on an Instapot that's running off my solar panels. I mean, as far as vans go, the one I have is pretty luxurious. Um, you know, but I built it with a buddy. It wasn't, um, I didn't buy it that way. I didn't spend two hundred grand on on this van, which is probably what it would cost to get it all made that way. Um, so, I think the van life is great if if it uh, appeals to you, or and you live in a place like the U.S. or Australia or Canada where there's lots of open land. In the in Europe, it would be a lot harder and a lot more expensive. Yeah.
2: So some people are asking for more insight from you and retrospective on doing 500 episodes. And um, I'm, I'm also curious, you sort of said that it's very difficult for you to stick to anything for a long time. And you've stuck, t- stuck doing this for quite a while and still seem interested. And why do you think that is compared to other things that you've done in your life? And can you kind of reflect on some of your most fond memories? I'm sure there are. Millions of them, but millions. any stick out in your mind from well? The
0: years past? I, I mean, it's like I think for me, the reason this is something I continue to do is that it's the ninety percent of podcasting is stuff I already like doing. the The hassle quotient is quite low at this point. It was higher at the beginning when I didn't know how to edit or do the sound stuff and I was uploading these podcasts and people were like, I can't hear you dude like you gotta raise the volume and I was like, how do you do that? I, I have no idea um, but you know the the essentials of podcasting are things that I just like doing. I like meeting new people. I like conversation. I like picking someone's brain about their life. I'm I'm legitimately curious and grateful when someone is willing to just sit down with me for an hour or two and talk about their experience in the world. I fucking love that. Um, I'm not a journalist, so I'm not I'm not someone who's looking to catch people in a lie or expose them as, you know, in some way, like I, I appreciate that kind of thing, but that's not who I am. I'm just, my thing is like, I just want to go out and say, so who are you? You know, like uh, we were talking this summer, uh, we're in the van. It was the first couple of days in the van and we stopped at a construction project. So all the traffic was backed up and we were in the first that we were the first vehicle. So the guy holding the sign comes over and he says, yeah, it's going to be 15 or 20 minutes or something. So you can turn off your engine and relax. I'm like, "Okay, thanks, man. And he keeps walking down the line, talking to people, telling them what's up. And this guy's got the most boring job in the world, right? He stands on a highway with a sign that says stop on one side and slow on the other side. And all he does is turn it back and forth when somebody tells him to. And then he comes back up and he says, how come you didn't tell me you're famous? And we're like, what? he said, yeah, the people in the car back there, they're big fans of your podcast. And I was like, what? That's so funny. And uh, he said, what's it called? And I told him, and what's it about? And I said, oh, just talking to interesting people, you know. And he said, I guess everyone has a story, right? And I was like, yeah. And he said, I got a story. And I was like, I'll bet you do, man. I bet you do. And then, you know, the rest of the summer, we're driving all around, and we would see these guys standing there. And I had this idea. Wouldn't it be cool to just pull over and just walk up to these guys and be like, hey, I do a podcast and I'm doing a series on guys who hold those signs on the highway. Who are you? How did you get here? What's going on? What's your life like? I would love to do that. You know, I would love to just I've also had the idea of just randomly in you know, go sit somewhere in a public park and just randomly walk up to a person and be like, hey, would you talk to me for half an hour? I just want to know who you are. And uh, that would make me really happy. I love doing that kind of shit. So that's why this, this is the ideal gig for me, because it's, it's something I already like doing. I feel like I'm well suited to it. It's easy for me. Like people say, Oh, you're really good at interviewing. I was like, did I interview anyone? All I did was what I would do exactly what I do when there's no microphone, right? It's not, there's no discipline to it or, or, or effort. And, um, and I love the interaction with the audience. So I love when I get like, just this morning, I got an email from a guy who is about to have a hip replacement. He's a vet, a fireman, and he's gone through some tough shit. And he's like, Hey man, your, your podcast um, has sort of cheered me up and made me feel less alone. And I really fucking appreciate it. It's like, Jesus Christ, who gets to have that kind of presence in someone else's life with as little effort as I put into this? I'm not the nurse. I'm not the doctor. I'm just some, some guy just talking. And there are enough people who, for some reason, listen that it's financially viable. It's fucking awesome. And I'm so happy to have to know the, the, the impact that this has on people, like Mike said earlier, but I'm also so happy that the audience gives me the leverage to meet people who would never have time for me. Otherwise Um, both, you know, famous people who just don't have the time or just regular folks who, if you just walked up to someone and said, Hey, uh, tell me your life story. They're like, who the fuck are you? What are you talking about? But if you say, I've got a podcast and, you know, 50, 60,000 people listen, would you tell me your life story? A lot of people say, sure. Okay. That's amazing. I love it.
1: You become a friend, I think as well, because, you know, this person going for for hip surgery and you know, they've had you in their ears. I've had you in my, in my ear for, I don't know, what, four five years? I think it's 2015 I first heard of one of your podcasts. And so that's a long time to be listening. And I don't know if either of you have ever seen this. There's a great meme about podcasters, and it's three people laughing, eating ice cream. And then next to it, and in, in, that's a poster. And then in real life is a guy with a bowl of ice cream looking at the poster, laughing with them. And it's the best meme that I've ever seen for a podcast uh-huh. because you're sitting there and you're laughing that's along, cool. like you're listening to your buddies have a chat. But obviously they they don't know you, but I know you've talked about this before, Chris. But there's a relate, there's a strong relationship going the other way, and it's it's a funny yeah. thing, it's a funny thing we've probably never had. In, in history, I guess, until now to have, you know, what, 500, 500 more plus hours of you talking as some, some, and many people have listened to a big, big chunk of that and they know you so well. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a funny old business, isn't it? it?
0: It really is. And I don't think it's ever existed. I don't think anything like it has ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in in the intro to one of the collections that we put together, I think it was Tangentially Speaking or Tangentially Reading was like a a sort of a best of book that we put together. I remember saying that I equate this to the invention of the printing press. I think this in some ways is as radical and potentially as impactful in the sense that, you know, here you are for the first time in history able to say anything. I can say anything. I, I don't have any... Corporation, no boss, no committee, no human resources department. I can say anything I want. And the only responsibility I have is to my sense, my own sense of, you know, honor and decency and to the audience. And that sort of opened things up in such a way that it's revolutionary. And I think we're just starting to see the beginnings of the impact of that. And the other thing that's fascinating about it, um, this is something my friend, Simon Rex and I were talking about, uh, he's an actor, uh, rapper, comedian, very well-known guy. And we were in a cafe in LA and the woman behind the counter was like, Hey, wait, you're Chris Ryan. You wrote sex at dawn. I listened to your podcast. That's great. And she was really happy to meet me and, and, uh, I gave her my card and I said, give me a call. We'll have a coffee sometime. And we went, we walked away and Simon said, dude, you should never do that. Never give a fan your phone number. Like that's going to be a disaster. Oh, I'm warning you don't do that. And Simon's a great guy, right? He was, but he was speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. And the woman called me and we went out for a coffee. And now she's a good friend of mine. Shout out to Mary if she's out there. Um, And later, Simon and I were talking about it. He's like, yeah, you know, I when I said that to you, I was thinking about the people I meet who have no idea who I am, right? They've just seen my act. They've seen me pretending to be drunk on stage when I'm dirt nasty, or they saw me in scary movie three, four, and five, or they saw me in this where I'm pretending to be that, but they have no idea who I am. So when I have a personal interaction with them, it's always awkward and weird, and they're relating to me as if I'm some character they saw. Um, so it's always bad. Um, not that he doesn't love his fans and love their appreciation, but it's they're not reacting to him. They're reacting to something he was pretending to be. Whereas with podcasting, at least this kind of podcast, which is just hanging out, talking with people... They actually do know me. They don't know all of me. And this is something Anya can speak to. But, you know, there are parts of my life I don't share on the podcast. But what I do share is actually me. I can't be bothered to act, right? I'm not not an actor. So it is a weird thing where, like, you you know, with that ice cream thing, it's like, yeah, yeah, they're looking at the poster laughing along but they're actually also part of the poster in a sense. Um, And at this point in my life, probably over half of the people, you know, if I had to name the 20 people outside of immediate family that I'm closest to, I'll bet over half of them came through the podcast. They met me. I remember meeting a woman at one point who like, came I was some remote place and she showed she was like hey I'm I'm flying through there I'd love to meet you how'd you feel and I was like yeah sure (laughs) if you want to come and meet me and she did and she was great it was really cool and at one point I said to her man you took a big risk like coming here you know and flying two hours away out of your way to meet me and she's like no you took a risk I've I know all about you I've got a PhD and Chris Ryan and his friends I you didn't know me but I knew you so it is an interesting kind of intimacy
1: what do you yeah. see the future looking like Chris so you're at 500 now I don't think it's about maybe putting a number on going I'm going to get to a thousand or two thousand but what do you what do you think the future of, of the podcast looks like?
0: Uh, hopefully just more of the same mm. you know whatever that is um, I uh, yeah I mean I don't know I maybe people get bored I, I mean I don't know if people are still around after 500 episodes I guess there's enough variety in it yeah. um, that it it's gratifying you know at least occasionally for them but um, you know I've got uh, I, I'm it's it's interesting because I'm getting pitched a lot more now, whereas before I was sort of, I thought it would be really hard to find guests. Um, that was one of the things I, I learned early on. Uh, I thought like, man, what? One a week? I've got to like find four interesting people every fucking month to talk to? Like, uh, how am I going to do that? And then once I started uh, being open to it, i like, I've got way more interesting people around than I have time to interview, right? Or to have these conversations with. So it's never been a problem finding enough guests. And now, and that's getting easier and easier because um, I'm getting pitched. I get, uh, I'm on some list somewhere, and all these publicists are writing to me, like, hey, I, th- I talked about this in the last one. I got a thing from a publicist saying, how would you like to interview Henry Kissinger uh, about a book that he's involved with? And I'm like, fuck Henry Kissinger. Um, But it's pretty crazy that some publicist somewhere thinks it's worth Henry Kissinger's time to come and talk to me, you know? Um, So that's cool in a way, but I'll bet I don't, I don't actually follow up on more than maybe 10% of those. Someone who's written a book about something that's actually interesting to me. Um, So many of them are like, you know, Navy SEALs advice on, you know, how to start a business and, you know, have perfect abs or something. I am that. No, no, thank you.
1: Yeah, I was just curious because of what Annie was saying, you know, you've done this for a long time. So uh, there's a there's a big YouTuber I watch who travels all around the world called Bolden Bankrupt. It's an incredible channel. Um, and he just goes off with the cameras mostly in um, like ex-Soviet countries. But he was talking the other day about at some point this chapter will close for me and I want to move on to something else. And I was just curious if you'd ever thought, do you know what? There is a point for me where actually I will step away or is it more of the, I'm just enjoying it right now. I'm not really trying to think too many steps ahead. I'll keep doing it because I enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I think more the latter. Uh, occasionally, occasionally I will think about like, yeah, maybe I should just give this up and do something else. And But the thing is, the podcast doesn't take so much of my time that I can't do something else, right? I can travel and do the podcast. I can write another book and do the podcast. I can you know, teach. I've thought about, for example, doing like an online writer's workshop kind of thing. Um, I could do that and do the podcast. It's not like, it's not an either or situation. Um, So, yeah. But, you know, like I said earlier, the things I try to have my life um, as organic and unconstrained as possible, Um, you know, no alarm clocks you know, don't have to go to bed at a certain time every night, uh, you know, can uh, location independence. Uh, I can be where I want to go. And, um, and so podcasting is the same. If the time comes where I'm just like, eh, you know what? I'm kind of out of gas on this, or I have some health crisis and I'm in the hospital for, you know, three months and I can't do it. Well, yeah, then I guess that'll be the end of it. Um, or if I die, if I die, it'll, I'll definitely stop. That'll be the last time yeah. you hear Carsey Blanton singing, you're going to die one day. And then on you'll say, and he
3: did. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's, it's interesting. Cause a lot of people, I mean, and obviously I'm sure Mike, you think about this too, as do I as someone with a podcast, but a lot of people are kind of asking like, how do you get over the nerves of hitting record or where did you learn to be like a comfortable public speaker and a storyteller and, You know, I think, and not to speak for you, but I think part of what makes this, you know, able to last as long as it does is because it's not really, it doesn't really feel like a job to you. Like for me, I I feel like for me, the podcast is actually an excuse to have conversations with people that I would never be able to have conversations with otherwise, who I really admire and respect. And the podcast follows my own, like authentic, totally, you know, curiosity Um, I'm interested in this subject, like shit, I want to talk to these people about it. And the podcast enables me to do that. So it's not, you know, I think people ask for advice about how to start a podcast if they're nervous or don't feel comfortable. And I wonder if that's sort of asking the wrong question, you know, because if you're not Mm. comfortable, or it doesn't feel like an aligned part of your personality already, um, then it might not be the best choice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You get that a lot from people like, I want to do what you do. What, how do I, how do I arrange that? It's like, Are you fucking getting <laughs> like, uh, it, it's weird. Cause it's like on the one side, you're like, yeah, I get why you want to do this. Cause it's fucking awesome. But on the other side, it's like, you have to be so fucking lucky. I mean, I think my podcast in terms of audience, is probably in the top one percent, right? Um, and it's it's like the economy that, you know, the if I'm at the top, if I'm at the 99th percentile with 50,000 listeners or whatever, Rogan is you know 99.9 with the million plus listeners, and the difference is massive, you know. So it's it's like the difference between Elon Musk and your rich uncle. that It's a huge difference, but they're both in the top one percent. Um, it's really hard to make money from podcasting. You know, I only make a few thousand bucks a month and that's with 50,000 listeners. Of course I could tone it down and stop saying bad words and stop talking about sex so much and, you know, have more corporate sponsors or whatever, you know, those automatic ad sales things that they do. And I'm sure I can make a lot more money if, if I did that, but fuck that, that, that feels, that feels dirty. And I don't want, I I want someone who tunes into the podcast to feel welcome and not abused. So even the shit that I do where it's like, you know, please hit this button in the Amazon thing and, you know, do this and do that. Even that I don't, I, I can't do that every episode. There are a lot of episodes where I'm just like, no ads, no mom talking about the cottage, no, you know, just, just, <laughs> pure content. And I'm not asking you for anything. And for me that it needs to be like that most of the time, I have never understood why Joe Rogan was running ads on his podcast before the Spotify thing. Like Joe, you don't need more money, dude. Like you got all the money you don't need to, you know, the mattress company and the square space and like, who gives a fuck? what's that cost how how i guess it doesn't make people them feel as dirty as it makes me feel that's my problem not theirs <laughs> somebody asked like what famous people i would be interested in having on the podcast and i get asked that all the time and it's uh it's an interesting thing because in most cases their fame makes them less interesting to me as a guest because I already know what they're about. You know, I already know what they're going to say. They do interviews all the time. They've told their story a million times. They know exactly what they're going to talk about. They know how to present it and who gives a shit. Um, But some exceptions, Uh, Jim Carrey, I would love to hang out with Jim Carrey because I think he's, He's a guy who's like you know been in that whole process, that whole fame thing, but he's really interested in going way way deeper than that. So I would love to meet Jim Carrey, uh, Russell Brand. Also, he's annoying sometimes to me, um, but Mike, maybe that's just because he's British and you know Brits can be <laughs> Talks fucking <really> annoying. Fast. <laughs> fast, fast. Uh, But also Peter Gabriel, another Brit. I would love to sit down with Peter Gabriel and apologize for making him so uncomfortable when I, (laughs) last time I met him. Um, But I think he's a great genius who um, moves beyond his particular art. You know, he, uh, all of these guys, right? They're all, I mean, two of them comedians, one a musician, but they're so much more than what they're famous for. And um, so, yeah, I'd love to meet those guys. Esther Perel, I know Esther. I've done a podcast with Esther. So if you look in the um, archives, you can find it was a live recording. It was me, Esther Perel, and Neil Strauss um, speaking at the Strand Bookstore in New York. And (laughs) I think there's a video of it, too. And I remember I was wearing a hat because... A few days before that, I had gone to a firing range with a friend of mine and I shot his rifle, and the scope slammed me right in the forehead. So I had like a third eye uh, when I did that thing with Esther and, and Neil. Um, and that was, I think, to like we were participating in the launch of Neil's book, The Truth. And uh, so that was the event there. That was pretty cool.
2: I think it's, uh, several people have said this, and I, I think it's an interesting point, like saying you should interview more people you disagree with, and maybe this is just because I talk to you so much about the podcast that you do, and uh, I feel like you interview a lot of people you disagree with, but don't necessarily make the disagreements the focus of the podcast, or at least in the sense that you don't make arguments the focus of the podcast, Um and I, I I always sort of wonder this myself with, with podcast guests, because of course I don't agree 100% with anyone that I've had on the show, but I always find it to be like more meaningful to find common ground and even sort of gently express disagreements or varying viewpoints without it becoming a debate or an argument, which I've always found to be like really not interesting and and nerve wracking and anxiety producing and I think it's so fascinating that people think that we like don't have anyone on our podcast who we disagree with, and I would argue I probably disagree with ninety eight percent of the people I have on to some extent, um, and you too, I imagine.
0: Yeah, and also it's hard because like like some of the stuff that I would disagree with people about is stuff that I have studied a lot, like human. Prehistory, right? Um, Human sexuality. So when someone says, you know, in the midst of making a larger point, someone says, you know, but, you know, everyone died at 35 and and 20,000 years ago and blah, blah, blah. And they go on. There's a part of me that wants to be like, hey, hey, hold up, hold up sorry, I've been studying prehistory for 20 years. That's total bullshit. You're totally wrong about that. But that wasn't their main point. They were trying to make another point. And that was just something they threw in. And my audience has heard me say that shit many times. If they've read either of the books I've written, they know, you know, I've talked about that in both books. So I kind of feel like I don't need to get into that kind of a thing Um, because the vast majority of the people listening already know what I think about that. They already know my perspectives on that. So then it becomes like a a big dick swinging kind of thing. And I, I don't, I don't need to be doing that. So I want people who come on my podcast to feel welcome and to feel comfortable. And what I'm really interested in is, is kind of like, putting someone in the best possible light. I feel like it's inviting someone to a party. And the last thing I want to do is invite someone to a party and then make them feel bad for having come to my party, you know? Um, So yeah, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a journalist, so I'm not trying to get into that, you know, hard hitting, um, you know, confrontational kind of interview. Uh, I love that. I mean, Mehdi Hassan, for example, who's sort of a trans transatlantic personality at this point, I think is excellent at that. And he does a really good job of it. That's not my thing. I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to have a good conversation with someone and then share it with, with people uh, that I, I, I was going to say that I love, but people that I want to be at the party with us. I want someone looking at the poster, laughing and enjoying their ice cream. You know,
1: I was going to say, it comes back to what you're saying earlier as well, isn't it? It's like that, that's not your clearly in your nature to have these big debates with people. You obviously can do it, but it's, you're not going to get out of bed and enjoy doing that every day. So it makes sense that you, you do it the way you do do it. And that's what I think the audience loves as well as not that it comes back to being that authentic self, again that's that's who you are so yeah so that makes sense i always do think how you would handle some of these debates i'd love to see you like with some people you do like there is a part of thing oh i would like to see chris argue against one of these people with very different opinions and actually i did actually ask one of my friends if they had a a question for you is there anything that you've is there anything that you've learned in the last five years that's shifted your perspective on something where you were quite firm down one camp and now you've actually gone do you know what i've actually changed my mind does anything anything come to mind to you there where you've you've kind of tweaked your you thinking at all?
0: Oh uh, wow! Well, uh, I'm I'm sure there are many things, but it's not the kind of thing that I you know put a bookmark in it. And mm. um, I don't know, Anya, do you? Uh, can you think <laughs> of anything I've changed my mind on in the last few years? Um,
2: um no, I don't know. <laughs> but I think I think the not putting a bookmark thing in it. I mean, I kind of think this speaks to some of the conversations that we have a lot about identity, right? And that, like, there's a difference between forming an identity around an idea or an opinion and then just, like, having an opinion or an idea from time to time that then kind of morphs. Um, And I think there's a problem in society nowadays, which I think is fueling a lot of the debates that we're having where people are saying, like, you know... I believe X, Y, Z about the government and I'm gonna find other people that feel the same way and then sort of like attach myself to an ideology and an identitarian movement right around this belief. Um, Whereas I I mean, I can definitely cite things too, but for me, it's always felt far more fluid as I'm sure it has for you. Like it's hard to see where you change something because you didn't necessarily drive the flag into the earth to begin with to say like, this is who I am and this is what I believe. and uh, yeah, it just, it feels far more interesting, at least to me, to be kind of evolving and fluid and like, shit, if I stuck to what I thought was true or what most interested me you know, 15 years ago, like I wouldn't have much of a life and would yeah. be exceptionally stifled. So uh, I think yeah. people just dig their heels in too much and then it becomes really embarrassing to say like, oh shit, actually I was wrong about that or I've changed my mind or that's no longer a huge priority for me. I mean, actually I have an idea. I think (laughs) someone asked where you think you will be not specific to the podcast, um, but in general, five to 10 years from now. And I do feel like you're kind of struggling with or grappling this idea of continuing to move and continuing to be kind of a, a free spirit traveler versus like, do I want a place to land and put my stuff and not have to move all the time and I think that's sort of been a lifelong shift for you that is still sh- still shifting. Um, but maybe something
0: yeah. That's and that's changed. a good example, right? Where like often I'll think like, oh, I wanna I wanna build a house and have a place and you know, have cultivate that kind of community. Um, but you know, it depends on this and that and the other thing. And I'm sort of, you know, waiting for different things to line up. So as you said, it's not like planting a flag. I mean, maybe one of the big things that I think about is like, I thought Obama was awesome. I thought when Obama was elected, I thought like, fuck yeah. Hey, the world is getting its shit together. Right. Like, Hey, Nobel peace prize winning, you know fucking cool dude with a great jump shot and a sexy wife and daughters who love him and like yeah a good guy running the country like i love america again you know and then it's like oh wait but he's he's arresting all these whistleblowers but he says he wants openness and he's increasing the drone strikes and he's you know doing more uh, fucking uh, persecutions of illegal illegal aliens and it's like what the fuck dude like i thought you were cool and you're not you're just a fucking corporate personality fuck so i was really wrong about that and it makes me really sad
2: i'm done yeah but I mean you have to kind of be that I think there's isn't that the point of politics really I mean I get really frustrated too at you know people like Bernie for example who I think have the best of intentions but don't realize that the whole thing is a circus and a game and like we all have to play the game in such a way in order to I don't know gain control or not we're all fucked that's
0: the answer yeah yeah a few people have asked about brett weinstein's uh new book i've not read it i don't intend to read it um i find brett and his wife to be annoying and i'm not really i mean this this gets into the whole thing of uh you know confrontational interviews and stuff um they were on Rogan at one point and apparently they said that they thought Sex was total bullshit and scientifically invalid and that I wrote it in order to get laid. This is what people told me. I never watched it. And uh, so it's like, you know, any sort of interaction with them is going to be annoying to me. And I, and I don't like, there's a smug certainty that they have uh, and that a lot of those people in that dark web or whatever it's called, that community, um, you know, the Steven Pinkers of the world, there's this kind of like, um, if, if you don't agree with me, it's because you're not smart enough to understand what I'm saying. I have no time for that. So Mike, you were saying, I wonder how Chris would, you know, debate people. If I'm debating someone who, um, begins the debate with the possibility that they're going to learn something from me that that I might be right about some things and they might be wrong about some things then I'm down I'm down and we can have fun and it can be cool and I'll be super respectful and you know make jokes at my own expense and I'm you know more interested in having a good time and and maybe you know making some friends but if I get emails all the time, um, and I've been interviewed by people who begin with the certainty that I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about, and that I'm totally wrong, I'm totally full of shit, and, you know, I wrote a book to get laid. Like, dude, I was getting laid way before I wrote a book, you know, there's zero reason to write a book to get laid, Uh, but um, I'm not interested in that, because you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to argue with a true believer about their belief can't. system. Yeah, there's nothing yeah, to be yeah. gained. It's just going to be a really yeah. unpleasant experience and frustrating. And it's just going to generate a lot of negative hormones in my bloodstream that I don't need. So I, I, I don't yeah. engage in in that kind of thing, honestly.
2: It's just, a. I mean, you can't, I feel like when I was younger and, I'm quite a bit younger, like 12 uh, and found out my dad was gay and all of a sudden got infuriated by all the fundamentalist Christians on the streets with like anti-gay signs and really felt like I was going to go up to them and debate them and change their mind. And like, that was a valid feeling at the time, but it was incredibly naive, obviously. And how much time do we waste by trying to convince people of something different? And I think that's the other problem with having people on who you know, like Pinker or the Weinsteins, like they're already set in their beliefs. And you can hear it, Sam Harris, you can hear this in the way that they talk about what they think and how they believe. And they put down anyone else who disagrees with them. And it's like, I don't need to subject myself to the energy suck that it would be to try to convince them. I mean, they're not even going to listen to it. So what's the point? Right. Like, I'd rather have a conversation with someone that's kind of like, more flexible or fluid in their beliefs. And then we can actually have a discussion changing someone's mind or arguing or disagreeing is not at all the point. It's sort of just like, it's like a genuine curiosity for each other. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I like conversations in which it feels like we're both refining and, and growing our understanding thanks to what we're doing together. So it's, It's not a conflict. It's more like the kind of very friendly struggle that you get when you're studying jujitsu or Aikido or, you know, something else where you are working against someone, but in only in a way that you're trying to help them learn the move and they're trying to help you learn the move. So it's it's more of a dance than a death struggle, you know. And, and I've, I mean, when I was younger, like what you were describing Anya, I cared I wanted people to agree with me, I wanted people to know that what I believed was really fucking important. And I got to a certain age where it's like, I don't care if people agree with me, it it has absolutely no value to me. So, uh, yeah, I don't care, really. About that, hey, we need to wrap this up. We've been going for an hour and a half, and I'm scheduled to record a podcast in half an hour across town. So we need to get the
1: It I'm just re- reminded of a very quick quote, which was uh, bees. Don't waste their time trying to convince honey's even odd in that you know, uh, convince flies. flies that honey yeah. is better yeah. than shit. Yeah, exactly. so it reminded me of I butchered <laughs> that quote, but yeah. Yeah, that's um, a good quote. I saw
0: that. I think uh, you you posted that or something. I've thought about that ever since.
1: Yeah. Well, Chris, it's been it's been a pleasure, and congratulations on five hundred to go back to where we started. <laughs> Thank and, you. Uh, and here's to the next five hundred as well
0: we'll see man and and definitely one of them has to be with you we we had a really good i mean i'm glad we're gonna let it sit for a while so we're not consciously repeating the conversation but uh i do remember really being interested in in your experiences on the camino and you know the big change in your life and and all that kind of stuff is quite
4: inspiring
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Gosto de tudo, dos morenos, dos mulatos, dos branquinhos, dos loirinhos, dos loirinhos e dos crioulos, porque só tem que ser homem. É. Tem homem corno, homem baixo, homem gordo, homem grato, safado, careca, cabeludo, viado, ousado. Tem muito, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito homem. Pois é, pois é. por respeito, saber ouvir, falar, escutar, ter dinheiro, celular, ser bom de cama e te respeitar. E se o homem não tiver nenhuma dessas virtudes, saia de perto e tome uma atitude. Porque o verdadeiro homem, ele te ama, te ama, te trata, te trata com carinho, com respeito e amor e vai te dar por toda a vida grandes felicidades serão felizes. Esse é o homem de verdade. Todo viado, ousado, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito homem Pois é, tem muito (risos) homem Todo homem que se preza tem que impor respeito Saber ouvir, falar, escutar, ter dinheiro, celular, ser bom de cama e te respeitar E se o homem não tiver nenhuma dessas virtudes, saia de perto e tome uma atitude Porque o verdadeiro homem, ele te ama, te ama, te trata Te trata com carinho, com respeito e amor E vai te dar por toda a vida grandes felicidades Serão felizes Esse é o homem de verdade Esse é o homem de verdade Pois é, é esse, é esse Esse é o homem de verdade Pois é, pois é Tem muito homem pelas ruas Nos bares, à noite, de madrugada. É, eu gosto de todos. Tem muito, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito, tem muito homem.